on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, the star of Opera Sarasota's upcoming production of Tosca, soprano Anne Toomey, goes inside the huddle with Oliver. But first, Opera America asks, what would you put in an opera time capsule? And we answer, oh, you mean in addition to pork scratchings? Plus, two-minute drill, tenor Nicky Spence breaks both of his legs. Was it Putin's GRU? Or if you're, that's a dreadful Russian accent, or if you're watching via TDO, look, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You want to get the full show. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, smash that plus sign. More platforms coming your way. That's in process. Email us those hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. We are going to nag you about this again later on in the episode. You drop us a line. You get an OBS beer coaster. You get an OBS lapel pin. Just ask our listeners on the coasts who have been receiving merch this very week from yours truly. Wow. Collect them all. Get the lapel pin and the coaster. And if you write in again with a secret identity and a different mailing address, you can get another coaster, another lapel pin. And then soon you'll have enough for the whole household. That's you Oliver can start Camacho. your own rival podcast. <laughs> Oliver With your own rival feeling merch. it tonight. Great to see you on the show. <laughs> nice to be seen. Matt Cummings, swarthier than ever. I'm here and I am wearing a sweatshirt. And wow. fresh from an event that we're going to talk about later on. Like literally <laughs> something wonderful has happened. We are feeling our Omicron hunker down, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Reston Williams. Ah, yes, I am neither swarthy nor sweatshirted, but uh, I am here in my closet, back from my extra little vacation, ready to go. And Ashley Hardgrave. I am amped beyond belief because the Winter Olympics start in 25 days. I'm so excited. Wow. You are so amped, you don't even have a funny name. I... Do I? Oh, I yeah. My Zoom died <laughs> earlier, and I had to like sign out and sign back in. I'll change my name. I, believe me, the next time you cut to me, it'll be something brand new. You'll love it. As you know, we tape our show on Monday nights. By the time you get this on Wednesday, Thursday, depending on how you listen, the national championship will be in the bag. Currently, Alabama up three zip over Georgia. All I, it, time. I yeah I I'm gonna regret mentioning this every single time. Georgia is for real. Georgia favored by two and a half points on this game Lies. tonight. Well we will see how that plays out. Let us talk some opera. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. Opera America marked its 50th anniversary in 2020 by celebrating the accomplishments of the opera field over the past half century. Obviously, they've extended that celebration into this year, and they've now posted an open call asking, what would you want to preserve in a time capsule for opera producers in 2070? Tell us the production or opera experience that's impacted you the most and why some of us on the team submitted to Opera America. Some ideas, 280 characters was all you got, by the way. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> We're going to take a few more minutes each. As soon as I reach 280 characters, I have to stop talking. <laughs> you, you, that's exactly right. That's exactly Never. right. Never. So, but Oliver, we are we are going to start with you. We're going to go chronologically here in our picks of what we would put in an opera time capsule that would not be opened until okay. 2070. I'm going to try to talk fast so we can everybody gets their picks in. But when I saw this call to action, I just was thinking, what were the things that I saw that made me the happiest and that felt this that made me feel like this is right. This is why you chose to pursue this career. This is why you go to the opera because everything is aligning. And quickly, I will say that Chicago Opera Theater's Death in Venice from I forget what year, directed by Ken Kazan, was one of my favorite experiences in the opera. But the show that I would submit or the shows I would submit for the time capsule are one of two productions uh, that Boston Early Music Festival put on uh, in this millennium. Uh, their 2007 Siche, an opera by Lully. Uh, or their Almira Handel's first opera from 2013. And it's just because it is a snapshot of what we thought operas from the late 17th century or 18th century could be if we threw the costumes, if we like built the sets and we painted the backdrops and we put the singers and the instruments on the stage that we thought were historically informed. And especially that Cichet just dazzled me with its visuals. Um, and the Almira had some of the best singing I've ever heard in Handelian, Hamburgian style. So I submit right now for you just a little bit of uh, Amanda Forsythe from the show singing the first aria of Edelia from this production 2013 of Handel's Almira from Boston Early Music Festival. they open up the time capsule in 2070 are they gonna think that they'll be this so is confused like was done like in 2020 what's with all the powdered wigs is this 1720 you're gonna single-handedly destroy the so historically informed yeah. performance but practice of 2070 again, this is very telling right because we're, we're gonna go chronologically through our pick starting with the least recent and already 2007 that was the the production of psyche that Oliver has picked. So we're already, what, 37 years on from, um, yes, thank you for the tip. Uh, <laughs> I should read that book. 37 years on from the beginning of this this time period that we're talking about. Again, 1970 to 2020, that's the first 50 years of Opera America. Matt Cummings, talk us through your pick. This is from 2012. 
Yes. First seen in 2012, later reprised in 2019. My pick is the Chicago Lyric Opera David McVicker production of Electra. Because when I think of evenings at the opera, that made me just go hype and be like, you know what? I could really sit through that the whole thing again and be perfectly happy. Uh, I think of this production of Electra. It was visually so striking with the House of Atreus that was kind of lopsided and had all this big tombstone like effect of uh, uh, of stones upended everywhere everyone was dirty which really gave the leading lady in 2012 was christine gerke the chance to go fully demented and she brought the house down in like really this was one of the performances that like launched her into this current phase of her career that she's in uh and it was absolutely blood curdlingly amazing uh in 2019 it was no it, it was just as good when Nina Stemma came to Chicago and did the role. The performance I went to, um, Alexandra Lubyanko jumped into the role of Chrysotomus. So maybe that time capsule will have an A Star is Born moment uh, <laughs> when they open it in 50 years. Uh, and spoiler alert, but when that river of blood runs down the stairs at the end of the opera after they kill Clytemnestra, like, just hype. Hype AF. <laughs> surprised by this pick i have to be honest like and this is not a knock on, on gurky or stemma at all because i saw it in 2019 I, david mcvicker I, I cannot believe we're putting david mcvicker in this time capsule i, <laughs> I mean to, if you're looking to me there is no artist who would be who is less interesting as a director than david mcvicker ouch <laughs> wow that's gonna wow. be the time capsule you throwing shade at david mcvicker <laughs> but in terms of big box productions like this is the one that stands out as one that really didn't feel like any kind of compromise was made to to in my in terms of my theater going experience like it didn't feel mass produced by ikea it didn't feel totally shipped around the world so that any house with a big enough auditorium could do it like that electricity and that frisson electricity totally yeah. i saw what you did there i didn't yeah. like it yeah 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 look it's very easy to do a david mcvicker production okay you paint the entire set gray then you run over it with a sanding belt and then you tilt the whole thing 35 degrees to the right <laughs> and then you have the cast like roll in dust that's all you have to do well, yeah, that's the when, time capsule moment. But what, so. about, what about the river of blood, George? What about the river of blood? <laughs> uh, the river of blood. I get I to mean, go. I'm going to agree with both of you because I think that David McVicker productions do look samey-samey. But Christine Gerke in 2012, I was like, who is this person? You know, I had heard of her, but was like, I was really like, this You were like is... pinned to the back of your seat by it the noise coming so off of that good. stage. It's so good. That's fair. That's fair. And the performances, that to me is is inarguable. 
I have the next pick chronologically. This is from 2014. We are sadly in the 21st century here. For me, the premiere of As One, Laura Kaminsky, Mark Campbell, Kimberly Reed, again, directed by Ken Kazan. As One, when it came out in 2014, people must have thought that this was this is a crazy notion, right? The idea of having transgender characters and putting them front and center. Here we are approaching 10 years later on this production. And there is no 21st century opera more produced than As One. It is consistently in the top 20 of operas that are done in this country. It is up there with the big three. It is up there with Mozart, Puccini, and Verdi in that top 20. And I think it it single-handedly defined the 2010s, that decade, as the decade of the American chamber opera. This was the show that really cracked it open, that really gave permission to other producers, companies, to invest not just in As One, but into other chamber operas on that scale. And I win. Thank you so much, everybody, for a great show. Dog days. I just gave it away, Weston. Yeah. Edit edit that one out. Weston, we're jumping a bit out of uh, chronological order here. Your your show, I have it listed as 2019, but it really is a 2012 piece. Well, it's a 2012 piece. But the reason I put down 2019 uh, is because that's when I saw it with uh, my good friend you might have heard of. date. Yeah, it was nice. Me and Oliver, we had a lovely little date to the opera that ended in cannibalism. It was great. Um, so honestly, a very typical That's all first my date dates for me, do, actually. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically, when I was thinking about this time capsule, I was de- thinking from sort of the historian's perspective, you know, what do we want to look back on as the sort of defining event of our times? And unfortunately... That is the pandemic. Um, but uh, but it's it's one of those things that's important to remember. It's important to like perceive and see how art was influenced by it, but also how art sort of like almost thought of it before it even happened. Uh, this wasn't the last opera I saw before uh, the pandemic shut everything down, but it was one of the last ones. And it's the one that has stuck with me. It's this sort of post-apocalyptic um, family just trying to sort of struggle by as things get worse and worse. And if that ain't relatable, let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you what. Um, and if it was also the first time I got to meet a friend of the show, David T. Little in person, mm. um, which was, which was amazing. That's and rad. It was pretty cool. And it was, it was one of those things that it was just such a definingly prescient moment um, that it really reminds me of 
the relevance opera can have even even before something happens, sort of like, you know, a lot of the the operas that prefigured World War Two in the Weimar era, you know, and things like that. Something's in the air. Something's coming. Something bad could happen. Is that um, from the set story? <laughs> somewhere <laughs> out there. Something that um, could happen. Something's coming. But it's really w- one of those operas that I feel like it was such an emotionally intense experience, and it was one of those uh, moments that I I keep going back to even after uh, shows have started to come back a little bit. I still go back and remember and be like, "Oh yes, this is the one that has had the most resonance for me over the past couple of years," and I want to drop it right into the time capsule. There it is. Do you have a clip for us? I do. This is uh, not from the production I saw at Northwestern with Oliver. This is from the original cast recording um, with uh, Lauren Warsham uh, humming her aria through the, uh, this is the letter scene where she's writing a letter to someone who she is not sure will ever read it um, because they don't even know if they're alive. And it's um, a really sweet scene surrounded by all these heavy metal influences. Um, it's, It's quite a moment. Wrapping up the time capsule submissions, Ashley Hardgrave, who brings us chronologically basically to the present. Yeah. Um, when I think of time capsules, it's the snapshot. In the words of my friend Whitney Houston, one moment in time. And uh, I know we're supposed Good to right. go up through. <laughs> thank you. I know it's through 2020, but let's be honest, 2020 was kind of a gimme and a mulligan in so many ways. And so many of the musical things that were important about 2020 actually happened in 2021, which is where my guy comes in. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about a non-opera yet very opera piece, the Verdi Requiem. Uh, the official title of this performance is the PBS Great Performances, Verity Requiem, The Met Remembers 9-11. Okay, so 
there's so many emotional layers to the moment in this one performance, in this mm-hmm. one organization and arrangement and production. You know, it was originally programmed to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, which is emotional enough in its own right. But it was also the very first performance at the Met House in 18 months after being closed for the pandemic. You want to talk about something that's of the moment, that's very emotional. You've got this cultural institution, this crown jewel. It's commemorating something that is so deeply personal to America, more importantly to the city of New York. And it's got a snapshot of some of the best musicians of our time. Yannick Nezis again is conducting. Your soloists are Eileen Perez, Michelle DeYoung, Matt Polanzani, Eric Owens. It was a beautifully shot uh presentation it was broadcast in real time and it somehow in what i thought was kind of a perfect move uh had a biffed cutaway ending that left the production too soon which honestly also seems very of the moment for things happening in the <laughs> yeah, pandemic. That's, yeah, that's, you know, that's more or less fitting right you know, it's a big omicron how, reference <laughs> well think about how imperfect and how disappointing so much of this pandemic time has been and become for my money, that whole production, that moment was the best, the worst, and the most emotional of who and what American classical music is in that moment in time. Uh, you can view the entire performance for free via PBS and their great performances series. All you got to do is sign up for an account. I encourage you to do that. It's a really beautiful production of an already beautiful and already emotional piece of music. Uh, and little birdie told me it's going to be broadcast on WFMT in February. Ooh. Yeah, the the Met broadcasts uh, have it planned. Oh, God, I want to say February 12th. I don't even know what a Saturday is in February yet. but A perfect <laughs> Valentine's Day yeah. treat. Looking at this time capsule that we have put together then, so all the selections are 21st century and all of them are from our own country. I get that it's upper America. I'll be interested to see and and the organization will be blasting out over the coming months what folks have decided to submit. Um, Will people in this country submit stuff that they've seen elsewhere, you know, say in Europe? Um, There's 30 years from 1970 to 2000 of some seminal 
productions and performances? How dated are those going to appear now and how impactful, really? How how changed are we going to remember them or misremember them, possibly? What will our successors Wait, mean- say about our terrible choices for the time capsule? <laughs> George, are you telling me that there are other countries other than America? <laughs> there that are. Not? That's not there what Opera America says. <laughs> There's other people out there, too. We want you to let us know what you think. What would you put in this opera time capsule? Give us a production that you've seen that has stayed with you. It's got to be between 1970 and 2021. If we bend the rules for Ashley, then we got to bend the rules for you. Operaboxor, gmail.com. You get merch for real. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. There is a production that you can watch right now of Swore Angelica from the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, apparently it was part of Kirill Petrenko's Karyan Academy uh, with, in essence, young artists. It's, initially, I, the idea was for it to be an outreach program. And it stars our guest today, Soprano and Toomey, as swore as an as angelica and uh this is available for you know pay-per-view and it you know it's from berlin and it's directed by uh nicola humpel um and it has katarina Dalyman as um the aunt that's and it's just one of those things that you have to watch it like you can't believe how powerful how intimate how just deeply felt this performance is. Uh, it will make you cry if you need a good cry. And it was released um, in February, just as we were going into lockdown. And it just feels like a piece that you know was meant for you know digital viewing, for viewing at home uh, before we got into a whole year or two years of this type of content. Uh, it it predates the pandemic, though it was released in the pandemic, and it is so incredible. So I encourage you to to watch it. We'll put a link uh, on our show notes to this production. Uh, we're about to hear a little bit of that production led by Kirill Petrenko, uh, but Antumi also is about to sing Tosca and Opera Sarasota and sing Beethoven 9 with the Royal Philharmonic. Uh, but here, let's listen to a little bit of Swore Angelica. such a special project to me for so many reasons. I not only got to do a European debut, um, but then it was with a piece like that, that is so special in a role that I felt like really fit my voice and who, you know, who I am as an artist. Like, thank you for what you said, because that's what I strive for. I mean, that's what makes opera great. And then even beyond that, it was 
with such incredible people. I mean, Kirill Petrenko, there's so much buzz around him and I'm going to fangirl for a second, but he deserves every bit of it. <laughs> and he's just, it's such a rare thing. He's a true vessel for the art and someone like him, you would imagine having this like incredible ego and he doesn't at all. He's so, it's so genuine and it's so, he's, it's so passionate and it's, it's truly his gift. And we're really lucky to have someone like him in the opera world. And I feel so, <laughs> it still kind of shocks me that that was the opportunity I had. Um, well, this thing, I mean, it came out during the pandemic, but were, was it produced during the pandemic? It's not clear because it happened right before okay. the pandemic. The performances okay. were February, 2020. Okay. Um, and our process was unique because it was a longer process than I think. Um, we had a good amount of time for a one act opera. Um, they decided this is like part of their educational uh, outreach portion of their programming. And, you know, usually that is a child's opera or something written uh, for that. And like Petrenko, three little that, pigs. <laughs> when you right, do. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Petrenko, when he took over uh, as music director there, he said, no, we're going to do real opera and I'm going to conduct it. And I just think, oh my God, thank you. We don't need to, opera doesn't need to change. We just need to find a way to get it to people and to communicate it to them that's relevant and meaningful. Um, but the so process was, it a, was really- Was it a youth audience? I'm, 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 I don't understand. No, it okay. wasn't. Okay. But it was the idea, it was originally supposed to be like outside of the theater in a different location. And that all changed for multiple reasons. But um, it ended up having this really meaningful um, purpose that was beyond the intended story. You know, it communicated something. And that had to do with the director, Nicola Humphel and her, um, and Oliver, they, she works, she works in a lot of different mediums. Um, but the one thing that made this unique that I wish I could have experienced as an audience member, but also you don't fully get on the HD was all of it was camera work. Mm -hmm. And so I, everything I sang was to a camera and there were two of them. And so I rarely only once in the whole show. And I, I specifically chose the moment to not look at the camera, to look at the audience. But what it was is these cameras were hyper zoomed in on our faces and there was this huge screen behind. So to the audience member, it was like, I was speaking every line looking directly in their eyes. And I think that had a huge impact that didn't translate um, when you watch it on HD exactly. But this process of like, we got to have a lot of rehearsal time playing is what she referred to it as where we were just doing improv or doing all these exercises that brought out certain things about us or certain movements we did, things that were part of us as individuals and then got to pair them with characters. And so we got to discover a lot of things that I don't feel like you ever have the time practically to do normally in a normal opera process. Um, and this production also had 14, all the 14 women involved in it, in the cast, were all from a different country. And that wasn't planned, but we utilized that in, in the show because we talked about culturally how having children is different in every culture and how sometimes the importance of losing young children in different cultures. And it ended up 
the show had a fundraiser for UNICEF after uh, we had a moment in the show where we broke from the music and there was a dialogue that was a story that one day we just heard in rehearsal from one of the girls. It was a personal story of her own and she shared it. And it was about like, I didn't do anything. I saw a young boy walking down the street and he was starving and I just kept driving. And it's something that was so normal in my everyday life. And there was a point where I realized like, that's not normal. The fact that I'm just like going home and continuing my life and seeing that. And her final sentence she said is, and I did nothing. And each person in the cast said that same sentence in their own uh, language. And oh, it was very hard. It was right before I had to sing the aria. And it, it got me, not only is that like an emotional high point in the show, it, that furthered it, you know, it made it, it didn't even pull me out of the character. I mean, it like further put me there um, mm. in that place. And you said like the emotional. You're, I mean, like, you, like for people who aren't singers, uh, you know, you can't actually cry and sing at the same time. It's like there, we have this mechanism. It's based on very tiny little muscles. And like once emotion takes over, you no longer have control over those little tiny muscles. What's well, that lump in the throat? Like yeah. everyone can relate to having a lump in your throat. Yeah. Imagine having a lump in your throat and then like your throat is like you trying to sing. It can be a mess. And for me in every role that I, well, a lot of the stuff I sing is not lighthearted always. So, um, there's always a point, like I'm going through it in, in a moment in, a, in what I'm working on right now in Tosca where I just can't get through it without crying. It's just too much. It's like, oh, and I have to experience that with every show. And then I get to a point where I've like cried it out and I can not disassociate, but, but I've like felt that. And now I, now it's very personal and like nearby, but I can reference it, but not fully go there or else what do you do? And I had this weird out-of-body experience with Swar Angelica. So if you ever see the HD, I mean, we talked about my running mascara at one point. Um, <laughs> I really did actually cry. <laughs> and it was just a tear. It was like a single tear. And I'm like, I remember in the moment, you know, the crazy thing about singers and like the 20,000 multitasking things you're doing while you're singing. I remember having this thought like, what? There's a tear? What's happening? You know? Yeah. And then I got to, you know, deal with that, like, you know, process that at a later time, like what happened? Um, but it's great because it also mixes with sweat and it looks like you were just losing it from <laughs> yeah. and close up. So it's really effective. Yeah. I can't fake cry. So I don't, it was, it was like, what is happening? Oh my God. Um, but yeah, that, that was such a spectacular, I, I've made a, I don't even know if it's a joke. I mean, it's, it's actually true when the pandemic, right. The pandemic closed right after that, which was a heartbreaking for our community. Um, but I always said, if that's the last thing I did, yeah. Okay. You know, like I, I've really experienced and accomplished something for myself. Well, this is an evergreen topic for us and I didn't prepare you for this, but I think you have an answer. Um, you talked about the long rehearsal process and I assume that Nicola Humpel and Oliver Proska, they're working regularly in the German system where rehearsal process is naturally longer, would you say? I think it depends. Sometimes yeah. shorter, you know, okay. sometimes they put up a Tosca in three days, sometimes. But like know. for a new, for like a new production. I don't really know, but I, I think, yeah, it can be anywhere. For, it can probably be six weeks or longer. I, I guess it all depends. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, having just understood a little bit about Reggie Theater and 
you know, German directors or whatnot, um, that there's like this work that is done there generally that is more about body and, you know, they have this culture of like Tanztheater and expressionist movement and whatnot, which, you know, when you're, when that stuff is new and being sorted out, it's kind of like, this is weird. I'm not really into this. But then when you get to a, a show like this one, where it's so integrated into the process and it feels so emo like the movement feels emotional, like just as emotional as the singing. Was that like a shocking experience for you to like, oh, opera can be this too? I mean, I had experiences like this, but never in a professional company. Like I had never experienced exactly what I experienced. I mean, yeah, German, German opera, it, it is, it can be different and a really amazing. Um, but it was, it was really different. I mean, like this movement, there was, there were distinct movements mm -hmm. that each character sometimes had, like, there were like, the, the director gave every single character a really specific story and journey, and they got to discover how to communicate that in their not full aria, right? Like mm -hmm. the characters don't have arias, a lot of them just say a couple lines here and there, mm -hmm. and they all had serious you know, characteristics that they got to portray through movement, which they found. It, it was unique and really, it was really special. It was fun. And also the camera added a whole nother element of I'm used to big theater. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I've been trained to sing in these, you know, to emote in these large theaters to reach the back of these spaces. And I was being asked and challenged to like, have a camera only see, what do they call it? The president view is I think what they refer to <laughs> yeah. it, which is like the portrait. Um, and I had to be so insular. It was like, oh my, not in, but like a lot more reserved in my yeah. movement and it's, more, it's more honest intimate, and yeah. more like sitting on a couch with someone. How would you actually say this? Yeah. So, well, I, I'm going to jump around and I, I know I, I gave you a pre-interview outline, but this is <laughs> leading to another topic that um, I think you're ready to talk about. Um, it does have to do with a fearlessness that I find in your performing, like you are ready to be in a small space with people. And I think a lot of people who have done young artist programs know that sometimes they're called upon to do these events that are like for a small audience. And like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like sitting in front of singing in front of somebody who's like drinking a glass of wine and just ate dinner, you know, and then of course they ask oh, and like, please at the end, like do something pop, like do something like fun, you know, which I always find to be insulting because like, I'm actually there to hear, you know, you sing uh, the Leah's aria from uh, L'Enfant Prodigue, you know, I don't care about that other stuff, but <laughs> you are actually very capable of, of doing that, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call it crossover, which uh, sometimes to me is the cringe moment at one of these events. Uh, but you just like really embrace it and like dive right in and you're like, okay, you want to hear me sing Whitney Houston? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that I, I know what you're saying. And like, I, the communication for me, why I sing is communication. It's just like, I want someone to feel the way I feel when I listen to something and it like pushes me past, um, whatever's happening, you know, it stops me in my tracks and makes me just feel right. And, and I always want to be able to communicate to people. Cause I just think that music is so special and 
with the crossover element, I think in the US, you know, it's a part of our culture in a really strong way. And it's actually how I started singing. I mean, opera came into my life much later and I sang pop music and jazz music growing up and in high school learned music theater. And I found opera later and fell in love with it and was like, wow, this is a type of technical challenge I hadn't experienced. It's a completely different type of technique. And so it's kind of fun for me. I mean, me as an artist, that's something I actually care about as an American artist, like who, if who's gonna, I just think there's a, there's a story to tell. They're all linked. Um, all these musical styles are linked together and they, they all strive to do the same thing in a different way. And so in an audience that's small, maybe you could pull someone in and with one thing that they're familiar with or, and then they get to experience so many other things that they maybe never did before. Right. But I mean, yes. And you're, it's clear that now that you said that, oh yeah, it, you probably did start the other way around, like doing like popular music first. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like there are these things like, and there's like these funny videos that go around, especially around Christmas time, like this concert in, I forget where that concert happens, but like they bring out like major opera singers and they have to sing like wham or something like that. Oh, I love that video. <laughs> <laughs> I love that video. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I think like everyone has things that they're good at and what make them special. And yeah, we're asked often as artists to push, um, to push ourselves, to do things that we're not like out of our comfort zone. Yeah, I think it's fine to try it. Um, I think I've heard more, a number of people's opera singers, colleagues of mine, and enough to make this a point that I've heard a lot of people say it's like easier to sing classical or to sing um, popular music. And I think that's their first mistake. You know, it's not easier. It's just different. It's a completely different technique. And if you use the same one and it's not always going to work. And there's also music out there that'll fit everyone's voice in any genre. You just have to like be willing to find it, I guess. But I've heard you in, uh, in one performance do, I don't know, I think it was, it was at the Nats, uh, Nats came to Chicago. And you like saying like, you sang like Anita Baker or something like that, yes. like sweet, like really like two octaves lower than you normally sing. <laughs> oh, that was, that, that is still a high point in my like performance, you know, memories. It's still, it was a concert with Renee Fleming and the young artist, when I was a young artist in Chicago with a bunch of us. And first of all, that experience alone of working with her is always like incredible, but being able to kind of, it was, I mean, it was my first really big concert as a young artist and with a big company. And they, they asked me to do something that was really true to myself. And I was like, wait, you're, you want me to do this? Was that um, a Renee decision or was that like ROC both. division? Okay. Yeah. Okay. She wanted mixture because she does, you know, she does a little yeah, bit of that yeah. mixing of genres. Yeah, she sings well. Death Capra Cutie, you know, so. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. That's the best track on that CD. I've searched for it on Amazon. I can't find it. I want to own it. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I just think, yeah, that was a really special concert. I, it was so fun. I got to sing like Troilus and Cressida and then come back and sing Anita Baker. And uh, I just, it was such a treat. It's really special. So I guess we're now talking about the Ryan Opera Center where um, I first made your acquaintance here in Chicago. Um, I think one of the highlights of your apprenticeship uh, was 
getting to step in for Daniel Denise, who my, and my understanding never canceled ever. Like it was like her first time canceling something like she must have yeah. been sick or something, you know? So um, you got to sing Musetta in this production, which is still making the rounds. Um, I forget who designed the production, um, but there, you know, Musetta really does uh, have a lot of stage business. She normally does, of course, but there's a lot of stage business. <laughs> you like take off your panties or something. Oh yes, I did. <laughs> on a table oh in a cafe it was it was it was um it was definitely the one of if not the highest point in my young artist time there it was it proved a lot to me and I think to other people um you being an understudy cover is is a really hard job I mean I think it's harder it's just like what they're talking about on Broadway right now Mm -hmm. these swings it's like it is such a complicated job you have to know it as good if not better with half the amount of not even half like a a two percent amount of the rehearsal that someone else that the person who's singing it does and sometimes you have no notice and you just, I, I, the first time I got to do it, I had like a few hours notice enough to go into a dress dressing fitting and, and, uh, or costume fitting and kind of, okay, this is what it is. Um, and it was so exciting. I mean, it was so fun, but it proved to me that like, you know, you never know. I don't know. There, it was an opportunity that doesn't get to happen. And I know I showed up and I was able to do it. And I was in a place where I was supported. I had friends on stage. I had friends and family in the audiences, like that in the audience that night that were like, Oh, got to get there. Um, it was a supportive place. It's, it was a really fun role. I mean, I have to say my nerves fully went to, will I make it on top of the piano in this like curtain gown, you know, curtain heavy gown and take my underwear. (laughs) Is this going to happen? You know, (laughs) that's where all my nerves went was to that exact moment. And I'm like, also this cafe is like bustling full of people and they all have to pull the plates and their chairs at the exact moment. I'm like, Oh my God. And then the minute you jump on the table, you start the aria. Yeah. Um, but it was such a fun character. I mean, was that just such a great character? And it, it honestly is like another one that's full of really fun singing. Um, and it was such a, it was such a special moment for me. It, it kind of was like what it was my final couple months in the program. And I, it just gave me the confidence to be like, okay, you're ready. You've got this. You, you can do it here with a couple hours notice. You can do it anywhere. I was such an incredible season for the Ryan Opera Center. Uh, Eric Faring got to go on in Ario Dante. And I remember also the Rising Stars concert that year. Uh, Josh Lavelle came out and sang like the aria from Semiramide and it's like who are these people and now every one of those people including you are getting these fantastic opportunities so it really does make it feel like Lyric Opera's program is the one if you get into it you know these things can happen they really can happen. I was yeah I just felt very lucky I mean not only the best part of working in a place like that is just like you get to work with professionals, right? You, there's there's only so much you can learn until you see it and you get to work beside it or watch it happen in the room every day. The people who are doing this at the highest level. And that's what I learned most there. But then also I was so lucky. I had the most incredible colleagues, like not only talented, but some of the most incredible humans that will be forever friends. Like they're actually family to me. And that 
that really benefited my experience. I had such an incredible experience there and I really think it set me up for where I am today. Well, speaking of today, you are in Florida as we talk and I guess like in a couple of weeks you're doing Beethoven 9 and then a couple of weeks after that you're singing Tosca with Sarasota. Um, so you're becoming like this Puccini singer, like you sang Swar, <sighs> you sang Musetta, now you're singing Tosca, like you got butterfly left and me. <laughs> I know, you know, it's one of those things. I, I mean, yeah, Puc I love Puccini, but wow. I, I didn't realize how much I do. I just feel like there's never a word. There's never a moment that I'm like, ah, oh, I could do without this. There's never a bar that I'm like, eh. I, there was a coach and I were working recently and we were joking. Like we would, he, we would get through a passage and we'd be like, someone try and write something better, please. Like, <laughs> could you get any better than these few measures? Um, so I guess I've turned into a big fan girl of Puccini and it kind of works out because- Was that Frank Miliotto by any chance? That said oh, that? it was. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like something he would say. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. That's amazing. I'm excited to tell him that. Um, yeah. And after that, it was just like, uh, it just- these roles seem to be fitting so well. Like they just, they like express the way that I innately want to express and my voice wants to blossom and show. And they're like the right challenge for me. So Tosca is so exciting. I'm beyond, I'm just really, I've really fallen in love with it. I mean, obviously so has so much of the world for hundreds of years, but, yeah. but it's just such a, it's such a beautiful piece and I'm really excited to do it. I was supposed to do it. It was one of my COVID cancellations. So I'm really happy to still have it um, be here and, and, and doing it in, in, in the warmth of the winter yeah. in Florida. <laughs> and it's, it's just an incredible role. And um, I'm excited to see how it, how it grows and where it goes. You know, I'm still at the process where I, it's just me, been both mostly me in a room. And it's exciting to, when you get to see the people you work with and the Cavaradossi and how, how we will, you know, what I get from him and how that changes how I do what I do. Um, and Beethoven nine, I mean, what an, I'm so excited for the opportunity with the Royal Phil on their tour. And they just happen to be here in Florida while I'll that is, also be here. So it worked out. I mean, that's what I don't understand. Like you are in Florida, but you're singing with the Royal Phil. So how does, how do you put those two things together? Like where sometimes people give up, you know, you just get a lot of times these great opportunities come and sometimes you can't make it work, but then sometimes the stars align and it works out perfectly. Um, so I'm just so excited for the opportunity to work with them and, and it's possible for me to leave hmm. rehearsal here and jump over and do a performance just across the state. Hmm. I mean, these, you know, Beethoven nine and Tosca, I don't necessarily put those things, two things together, but what they do have in common is that they are big things. And, you know, it wasn't that long that you were considered to be, you know, a young artist. It wasn't that long ago. Um, I mean, I'm just impressed. I'm not trying to say I'm scared or I'm worried, but like, it is like, <laughs> wow, it's like, these are big assignments, you know. I I guess you feel ready. I don't want to put any doubt in your mind, but I don't know. No, I'll be honest. So. No, I'll be honest. That I'm I'm always the first person to be like, what? How, what? I mean, Beethoven nine. It is not. It is a hard scene, but um, it's like fifteen minutes of hard scene. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's fifteen minutes, and I did it actually at a really young age. It was like the first professional concert gig I did, um, and so I actually can sing it 
well now. <laughs> I'm sure before it wasn't as great. Um, but with Tosca, I mean, I'm the first person to be hesitant about these things. And I was really nervous when the first one came in, which would have been last year um, on the calendar. I was like, uh-oh. And I'm so pleasantly surprised at how well the shoe fits. Um, I'm really excited to share it. It's, uh, I was as hesitant and nervous. And um, the, the, the only thing that scares me about Tosca is singing and jumping off. So, or not singing, that's not what I meant. That was the complete opposite of what I meant. The only thing I get nervous about is shouting, screaming, the yeah. like anything that's an actual scream, how do you do yeah. that and not damage the aria yeah. that comes after? Yeah. And jumping off the building. Yeah. Yeah. They should have somebody who screams off stage for you. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I th- that should be it- written in a contract. Someone else must scream. I forget what show I saw recently uh, where they actually had somebody just do the scream. Like maybe it was in Cavalier uh, Rusticana. Oh. So I'm going to tell you, is I don't, I don't know if you could tell on the HD, yeah. but in Svar Angelica, that also happened. Okay. We, we, um, but it was a part of the show and it had to do with, there was a character that was a dancer mm-hmm. in the cast that didn't, that had only a spoken line. And we, we had, a, we built throughout the process, this really paralleled relationship where we kind of understood each other and what each other was going through. And when we've had this backstory that essentially she lost a child as well but no one knew. And so when she hears that my child gets lost, it brings back her own pain. Um, and so she did the scream for me and I kind of mimicked, we both looked like we were screaming, but only one of us was actually <laughs> doing the thing. Wouldn't that be great if we could go around in life with our own empathetic screamer <laughs> would scream when we needed to scream? <laughs> oh my gosh. I would love a shadow screamer. <laughs> Once again, you can watch Swar Angelica from Berlin. Just find a link on our website and also look out if you're in Florida for Antumi singing Tosca with Opera Sarasota Opera uh, in February. And then she's coming back to Chicago to sing in Chicago Folks Opera production of Korngold Die Katrin that's coming up in April. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything that you need to know about what happened in Gridiron Land this week. Lyric Opera of Chicago has postponed its production of Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrek's Proving Up to a Future Season. In a statement from CEO Anthony Freud, quote, This difficult decision is based on our current understanding of the ever-changing public health situation with the goal of keeping the safety of our company, our audiences, and our artists as our overriding priority. The remainder of Lyric season is set to continue in early February. In a Medium article, Juilliard alum and clarinist Zach Manzi speaks up about why he quit classical music and is encouraging others dissatisfied with the industry to consider doing the same. Quote, as I continued down this path of exploring a new, more effective way to create concerts, I found the powers that be in classical music didn't know how to show up and support meaningful change, or perhaps they weren't really that interested. It's okay to move on, even if you're a great musician. Ukrainian opera director Eugene Lavrinchuk has been arrested in Italy on a warrant issued by Russia. Russian officials are seeking his extradition for financial crimes allegedly committed while he was director of the Polish theater in Moscow. 
Lavrinchuk told an Italian court he was being persecuted for publicly voicing his dissent of Putin's government, which he claims led to being beaten up outside the Odessa Opera House in December 2020. That is four countries mentioned in one news item. <laughs> Despite the current Omicron surge, the Metropolitan Opera has not yet had to cancel a performance this season, attributing their success to strict health protocols, a robust system of understudies, daily repertory rotation, and good luck. Uh, let's hope the New York Times didn't just jinx it. <laughs> Opera Philadelphia is making its return to indoor performances after a two-year hiatus. The friend of the show company will produce Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex and George Walker's Lilacs later this month. Opera Saratoga will begin a new festival model this summer, expanding performances to multiple theaters throughout the region. General Director Lawrence Edelson explains, quote, our goal is to provide, excuse me, our goal is to provide access to our summer festival programming in the same way we are able to do with our year-round programs. Conductor James Gaffigan has been appointed as the Komisha Oprah's next music director starting in 2023. Wait, isn't that the Hot Pockets guy? Meanwhile, Hot Pockets. Ekaterina Dulovi has been appointed the director of the Bolshoi Theater. No, not that Bolshoi. It's the one in Belarus. Close enough. Florida Grand Opera has announced that Marlon Daniel will be the company's new associate conductor. Also in Florida, Pensacola Opera is shaking up management, appointing Cody Martin as music director and Corey McKern as artistic director. On the disabled list, Scottish tenor Nikki Spence has withdrawn from the Staatsoper Unter den Linden's upcoming production of The Macropolis Affair after he fell down the stairs at an airport on the way to Berlin and broke both his legs. We wish him a speedy recovery. The Berlin Philharmonic has announced that soprano Sonia Yancheva will not be singing the title role of Tchaikovsky's Iolanta due to the flu. Why do you no wear a mask? Soprano Asmik Grigorian will be taking on the role in her place. And we've got COVID cancellations all over the world. Théâtre du Châtelet is canceling its upcoming Messiah. Opera de Montreal has canceled La Traviata. Teatro San Carlo has postponed the opening of Lucia de Lammermoor. And Deutsche Oper Berlin has postponed the opening night of Temlinski's Deathswerk. <sighs> also, the extremely long list of beneficiaries of the OBS bump were incredibly disappointed to hear that the Grammys have been postponed for the second year in a row. Exit stage right, American soprano and sometimes mezzo-soprano Maria Ewing has died at age 71. She was known for her strong dramatic choices and passion for singing whatever varied repertoire appealed to her, inclu including Blanche de la Force in a landmark production of Dialogues of the Carmelites, Marie and Wozzeck, and the title roles of Zalame and, the, and Lady Macbeth of Mtsensk. The conductor, stage director, pianist, and author John Moriarty has died at age 91. Affectionately referred to as J-Mo, Moriarty was artistic administrator at the Santa Fe Opera and Washington Opera Society and administered apprentice artist programs at Santa Fe, like George Wolftrap and Central City, where he led the company for two decades. Moriarty was also the author of a book every classically trained American singer owned at some point in their lives, Diction. Greek soprano Martha Arapis has died from COVID complications. She was a leading performer at the Greek National Opera, appearing in more than 40 productions between 1988 and 2009. 
And on this day, January 10th, in 1676, it was the first performance of Lully's opera Atis, uh, which was a classic. And uh, Handel's opera Teseo premiered on this day in London in 1713. In 1884, it was the first performance of the second version of Verdi's opera Don Carlo in four acts in Italian at La Scala. In 1903 was the birth of French conductor Jean Morel. In 1933 was the birth of Japanese composer Akira Miyoshi. And very happy birthdays to American baritone Cheryl Milnes in 1935, American bass baritone James Morris in 1947, and American Rockwell Blake, born on this day in 1951. <laughs> and that is your two-minute trail. You just heard Maria Ewing singing the Sigi D from a production of Carmen uh, that took place at the Glyndebourne Opera in 1985. Uh, and the London Philharmonic is playing with Bernard Heitink as the conductor. The late Bernard uh, Heitink. The late Bernard Heitink, yes. that's true. Bernie. You know, uh, Maria Ewing has been like, her name has been said so many times recently because of that movie Passing. Her, uh, which Because her daughter, Rebecca Hall, was yeah. the, is the director of it. Yeah, and so just like a couple weeks ago, I was listening to an interview with Rebecca Hall, and she was talking about her mother, the opera singer. I was like, who's your mother? Maria Ewing. And I always thought that Maria Ewing was some kind of not white. And I, I didn't really know it, know it until I heard this interview with Rebecca Hall. So she's one of our opera singers of color that we should, uh, well... She did a lot of other things besides be a person of color. You know? <laughs> I was so sad. Like this, this, this literally happened like right before like the, the news dropped, like okay. as we were like recording, which was devastating because like uh, her recording of Lady Macbeth of, the, of Mitsensk is, is like my go-to listening uh, whenever I'm, I need like a, like a rage listen. Do you know what I mean? Which has happened a lot over the past couple of years. Oh, did something uh, happen? but like i I was i was it was so devastating just like you know because i just have such a personal attachment to that recording i mean who uh, else sings lady Macbeth of mitsensk and carabino like (laughs) and it's such a range range. and all right so how how do we piece this all together so lyric opera for chicago is canceling companies in europe are canceling the Met mm-hmm. is not canceling. Well, they will be because now they've been jinxed. But like, how how does this all compute? How does this all add up? Well, I'll say that Lyric, the story is a little bit misleading. Um, Lyric had programmed Proving Up, but they were going to perform it off-site at what's in Chicago called the at Goodman the, Theater. The Goodman Theater, yeah. yeah. Which is in the theater district, but it's not, you know, a 2,500-seat house. Um, right, yeah. And so it's a much more it's intimate It's big. Venue. It's not that big, though. Yeah. And um, that's that's really a COVID concern. Uh, but the Met uh, has, you know, we have this story of how they like have this like rotation of repertoire and which how... helps because contact tracing is not quite as perilous compared to like a Broadway house where you're doing the same show with the same people eight times right, a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot likelier that you will have to just pull the whole show if someone tests positive, whereas you might be able to get away with uh people not having the same kind of exposure if you're only doing a show every couple of days with those people. 
uh, and the the Met has also been really cautious with making people pull out. Uh, like, right, yeah. like Quinn Kelsey had cold symptoms but tested <laughs> negative, and the and their uh, their their policy was you cannot do Rigoletto anyway. Yeah, yeah. Michael Kildy stepped in, but they also had uh, a case in the Cendrillon, and it gave the opportunity for a singer to make her Met debut, albeit mm-hmm. from the um, from the pit or from this from the wings from the wings while, yeah yeah while a dancer uh stepped in and acted the role on stage so um vanessa becerra made her met debut and uh the dancer linda galinas acted the role i just um, always i i feel for these people when the situation happens where someone has to sing from the pit someone else goes on right like that's imperfect so there's weird. Some, it's so strange <laughs> and yet like the number of eyelids that are batted by that is probably very low. It's like, well, of course we're going to have like a, a mute dancer perform this role and someone will sing it from another location approximately 50 feet Better away. Better a like, dancer than a, than a singer that doesn't know how to act. <laughs> well, like, Or is too knows, scared to try yeah. to act and make music at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And who knows, who knows this? I just, I've always loved that kind of show must go on type of thing. The show was not going on for Zach... Menzi. It's not. It's not. Uh, the spirit of the great resignation is coming over into the world of classical music. Uh, and I I don't blame him. I absolutely don't blame him. The one thing that I wish he had gone a little bit further into detail about was this whole thing about how he tried to produce a concert the head of the festival called it something like daytime television. And then magically they had an identical program that was programmed into the season the following year. Yeah. How was it like daytime? How was it like daytime television is also what I was dying to know. But, Unless well, and, it was you know, Jerry I'm, Springer, the opera. Which is a piece of its own, right? But, it's, well, a, it's at I'm, 60 I'm, frames per second. That's the difference. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure he he does a lot to kind of not name names. I kind of wish he had. I'm assuming this is at New World. So it makes me want to go back and look at the programming of New World Symphony over the last couple of seasons and see if I can pick out what this is. I, you know, I get his sentiments in a lot of ways. I don't blame him, uh, but I do wish I had a few more receipts on this. But at the same time, this is a sentiment I am hearing from so many young classical musicians across mm-hmm. the board, opera singers, instrumentalists. I'm hearing this from everyone. And in a way, I, yeah, I get it. I mean, there's, I think there's plenty of reasons to walk away right now. I mean, I don't think there has to be any shame in this. In the article, he talks about the, sh- the shame in quitting. And the quote, of course, was, it's okay to move on, even if you're a great musician. I mean, I would just say it's okay to move on full stop like it it doesn't have to be shame i'm not i'm not in the business to, to shame this guy who i've who i've never met i will i will come back to bo Buckler, famous michigan coach those who stay will be champions look longevity <laughs> and tenacity are everything in this business they really are it sounds so boring for me to say it i say it to my students god they want to punch me in the face when i say it but it's like <laughs> Dedicate yourself to this art form. Dedicate yourself to this craft. Redefine success. Redefine what you want your path to be. And you will be surprised about how much you can accomplish and how many of these problems go away. And don't trust anybody. Certainly don't trust anybody in academia. There are so many people waiting in the wings to take that spot, you know. And there are people that I know who just stuck with it as hard as it is. 
and as demoralizing as it can be and as financially uh you know insecure as you might feel um there are people who just stuck with it and found their careers and, and frankly, i'm not saying people who aren't even that good and i'm not <laughs> saying that we should all suffer for our art you know but like you you get asked this question when you're probably in high school or maybe when you're in college like if there's anything else you think you can do then do it you know i, I hate that because i think that that discounts a lot of people who could become the next administrator or the next podcaster or the next radio announcer somebody yeah. that you know that maybe is not the best uh technical musician or the best artist but still loves it you know um i think those people find their careers through performance often and we need I, those people you know uh-oh you're about to well, say but, i don't well, know what? it's matt you go and then i'll go well what frustrates me about so much of this conversation is that it does there is often this kind of sense that like being a performing musician has zero transferable skills into any other field yeah. uh and so many students like i get that they are they're being warned about how difficult it's going to be when there are conversations like that when they when people say if you can imagine yourself doing anything else do that but um the like the fact of the matter is to from my my experience and the experiences of many other people that i've talked to like be staying in the headspace of trying to make it work for yourself when it isn't working can do more harm than good in terms of your love of the art and of the art form and mm -hmm. taking a step back doesn't necessarily have to be the same as quitting and saying that like create making being a professional musician the same thing as as being a musician at all or being able to identify as a musician is something that creeps into a lot of these conversations that uh, educators and instructors have with young students. And I think that's what sets up this whole dramatic breaking from the industry to begin with is that the false choice was planted in their mind as children. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, I think that so much of what we're hearing from the writer in this article is the types of comforting assurances or flexibility that he didn't receive or didn't feel that he received at a time when he could have made different choices. I think that's part of the reason he's writing this article now and doing that airport uh, departure grand announcement that he is exiting the station. Um, but I also think there's got to be room to see some of his points, some of which are incredibly valid. I mean, the, the note yeah. about fewer and fewer people coming to classical music concerts in the States every year, he ain't wrong. Where's the lie? The way that we train people to be professional artists in this country, it's not great. It's not great many yeah, other we, places, We've too. talked about that <laughs> multiple yes, times we about have. some of the and flaws. I, and I think it's really important to leave room for grace for somebody like this, uh, because if we don't, it's a very multi-level marketing victim blaming. Uh, if it didn't work for you, it means you weren't working hard enough. Uh, and so I just, I hope that, I hope that we can leave room for grace in that. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 not about shaming. It's about redefining what success is and, and what, in this example, music, what kind of music you want to put out there and, and how is that going to serve you? I just, I just get a little bit of his anger and his wanting to tear it all down, you know? I, I think there's something to that, though. I think that there's, you know, 
I do think that a lot of the problems with classical music and opera are the result of this disconnect between people who are in charge of administrating opera, programming things, um, and people who actually would potentially go see it. Like, I think there is a point where you do kind of have to stand up and, and fight these administrations a little bit. And sometimes, you know, you have to take a pause, take a break or leave entirely. Um, but this is, you know, one of the things I hope we do with the podcast is really bring out, you know, what these voices who are not in charge are saying and thinking and feeling when it comes to opera. And I think that that's something that hopefully people like this who are thinking of quitting, you know, uh, can take to heart and say like, well, there is stuff worth fighting for. There's, but there are times where it's okay to feel good about taking a break as well. And I, I agree. One article can't cover everything, but there are yeah. change agents, and we talk about the change agents all the time on this show. And I'd rather put my energy mm. in amplifying their work than somebody who's just like complaining about it all. John Moriarty was one of those change agents. Santa Fe Opera, Washington Opera Society, Central City, the book Diction. Oliver's got it. Show us that. Show us that copy of Diction. This is not going to make it on the show, but there it but is. But there we are. It's, 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 folks. Yeah. It is got it's uh, blue. white font and it's blue. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's the most utilitarian-looking book. <laughs> it, it's what Oliver consults every yeah. time I read the On This Day and, no, and shakes I mean, his head disapprovingly. I'm not sure if John Moriarty was a change <laughs> agent, but John Moriarty represents, you know, the best of that generation of developing young artists and supporting people and encouraging people and giving people tools to become a success in this business. Um, I didn't know him personally, but just seeing all of the outpouring um, in my social media, people who were touched by him and who were encouraged by him, uh, it really makes me think that he was one of the, one of the good ones. And uh, I don't know how many people we have like that now who know the craft so well and recognize great voices and is willing to give time and nurture those people. I mean, yes, they exist, obviously, but, you know, he is one of the greats, apparently, uh, who did that and dedicated his life to it, you know. I need to get the book a little higher on my reading list, probably. <laughs> Nikki Spence, getting to the airport to go to a show and breaking both legs, that sucks. So Ashley, bad. moving the on. <laughs> the curse of Macropolis case. What are you going to do? <laughs> there we go. There we go. My so, so Vladimir Putin apparently has more uh, time on his hands than we thought. I Yeah. How exactly? When this man is on the precipice of another garbage invasion and another garbage <laughs> attempt at an inappropriate and super effing wrong annexation, how does he have time to send goons over to abduct i'm gonna say abduct an <laughs> opera director on a cause oh. when he spoke out when he was in charge of a polish theater in moscow when he'd already left the country after the last messed up annexation of ukraine this makes no sense to me we were reading reports today about russia being nanoseconds away from another invasion of ukraine and somehow they magically have time to go nab this opera conductor because he said something about him i don't know where's the lie a few years ago this whole thing is bonkers to me. It's about priorities. 
<laughs> well, if you're yes. as big a fan of, of mid-century Russian opera as I am, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, <laughs> like there's something about Russian despots and like obsession with com- with with opera related people that really is kind of staggering. So best of luck to this guy. I hope he doesn't get murdered by uh, what is it? The GRU, KGB, whatever it is. <laughs> Good luck to BRB. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> no, oh, well, and that's the thing is that there are there are echoes all over the world for his release right now. So. Yeah. we are we are not the well here i'll speak for myself i won't bring you guys down if i'm not on the show next week guys you know why uh but <laughs> we're not the only ones that are talking about this people all over the world are calling for his release but if putin if putin if you're listening i support you you're doing great babe. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note please let's wrap this show up very very quickly good call bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. It's how we end it every time. On the national championship, this is, man, this game is turning into real sleepers. 9-3, Alabama, halfway through the second. I forgot the national championship takes approximately two weeks to play. (laughs) Oliver Camacho, what do you got for us? Congratulations, Team Canada, and my future husband, Felix Auger-Aliassim. And I finally got around to listening to Fire Shut Up In My Bones from the Met broadcast. Um, I'm sure so we're going to talk about it again at some point, but um, that was that was great. Matt Cummings. Congratulations to one-time friend of the show, sometimes enemy of the show, <laughs> Tobias Wright. I'm making a heart right here if you can't see I'm it. fresh back from celebrating his nuptials last week. Uh, Maybe with COVID. Maybe, well, definitely <laughs> not on the way there that I know of, but who can Jesus. say? It's only been three days. Yeah. Too early to tell. Wow. But he sends his love to all of our listeners. Congratulations, Tobias and Leah. Weston Williams. Um, well, my bad call obviously is proving up uh, getting canceled by the lyric. This is true. I literally bought the the lovely studio recording of proving up, I, and I and uh, I very soon after I bought it, the lyric announced that they were doing it. I was so excited. I decided not to listen to it, so it's just been sitting there, staring at me while I'm like, I'm just gonna listen to it live first. I'm so excited, and they cancel it, and I'm like, ugh. So now I have to actually like open up my CDs and like shuffle them around and put them into the CD player. It's a nightmare. Getting that plastic off of the case is always the worst. So. <laughs> you scrape Speaking it against time capsules. Yeah. Scrape it against the edge of a hard surface. Yeah. Ashley Hardgrave. Um, I just realized that I'm off next week. So listeners, if you don't hear me, it's not because the Russians have me. It's because I actually <laughs> requested this time off. But so feel free. Don't to- worry. But- but feel free to ride against the Russian army if that's something you want to. <laughs> Unless on our socials you see the password, which we're going to say is Calliope. Otherwise, I'm fine. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a really great night at the Golden Globes for music in film. It was so great. West Side Story won Best Picture for Musical Comedy. Rachel Zegler, Ariana DeBose, and Andrew Garfield all won Globes for musical roles. It was a very exciting time at the Globes, even though they were seen nowhere by nobody. <laughs> on hbo max you can watch a show called hard knocks which is basically behind the scenes of in season one the dallas cowboys in season two the indianapolis colts as they get ready through the preseason for the nfl regular season it is basically unnarrated uh 
and it is beautifully crafted. And oh my gosh, does it put you into the absolute belly of the beast about what it is to be on an NFL team. And all I could think of the whole time I was watching it was opera and trying to figure out how, what a show like this could be getting ready for an opera season. It would be phenomenal. Hard That's Knocks. the musical Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> on HBO. <laughs> That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, and he's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, you're going to search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, it's at Opera Box Score. Please help us deepen that bench of listeners liking and sharing our social media posts. Again, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. Apple Podcasts, you just smash that plus sign. Email us your hot takes, your time capsule entry, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line, get that beer coaster and lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams for your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest, Anne Toomey. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you try to keep your good New Year's habits for one more week. We're back with an all-new show next week. You're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more SEC National Championship teams. Ah, so boring. Join us. <laughs>